your favorite band's about to play a sold-out show. You got in... Over here! ...with a friend and found a spot close enough to see the set list. They're definitely playing your song. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. Hello there, this is Jim the Keys bartender coming to you from Key Largo. Yep, it's another hot day. We are, well, another day, it's a hot day. I got up this morning, I went to the gym, took my, I took my daughter to school, went to the gym, went to my favorite uh, breakfast place, Doc's Diner. It's uh, 99.5 Oceanside. And uh, I had a little breakfast to talk to the owner there, uh, the uh, owner-manager, Gina. And we're in, I guess, the kind of summer. Um, not quite summer because it's kind of slow during the week, which is you, you expect out of season. But then the weekend, super busy. So we're back in the summer things. We had a, a really good Friday, Saturday, Sunday the uh, weather's, yeah, as you heard, it's get, it's hot. It's hot down here. And the uh, right up on the stretch, they closed down, well, not on the stretch, but uh, connecting the Keys, Cardstown Road. There's two route, routes that come in, Overseas Highway and Cardstown Road. They closed Cardstown Road to traffic because of fires in uh, the... Uh, Everglades between Cardstown Road and Overseas Highway our lifeline to the mainland you see smoke coming across there and uh, it's a hindrance to uh, people that come up and down there every day with traffic closing going north because of redirecting traffic from Cardstown Road onto the Overseas Highway so we have you know, both of those routes, one of them, the the, the route going to Cartown Road is the alternate route. So whenever there is problem on the main overseas highway, a lot of people reroute there in order to avoid it. But now they don't have the option. Everyone's going to overseas highway. And it's a pain in the ass for the people of Ocean Reef in the far north of Key Largo, the gated community. They have to drive approximately 14 miles south before they can start their journey going north. So, there you have it. Uh, that That's the update right there. The fishing is great. A lot of people are bringing, I've seen uh, some mahi brought in, dolphin. It's always, remember, when you if you come down here and you hear dolphin, they don't mean the mammal. They're not eating fucking flipper. It's a fish. Dolphin to fish. Because... It has a similar silhouette, though, if you looked on it straight on, you'd realize that uh, mahi is not dolphin the porpoise, so you don't have to feel kind of like a higher mammal cannibal. Does that make any sense? I mean, monkeys, um, the... uh, well, there's a lot of people that won't eat meat at all, but there's monkeys, porpoises, uh, you know, 
the the more intelligent one. You know, pigs are quite intelligent, so we eat a lot of fucking pork. So got that there. So we're on to the end of the school year, and a lot of kids are getting ready. Um, the uh, the governor of Florida, um. He uh, signed an, an executive order, order that is um, effectively overriding all local ordinances for businesses and public places, saying that local authorities cannot order mask restrictions or vaccine passports for them to come in. Local Authority. So now, the key there is that private businesses can do that. It's up to them. But then you have, if you're a business, right? And it's a business decision. So you got to think of your clientele. So maybe one... You know, certain places maybe use it to their advantage, meaning it's like we're still going to enforce it. You got to wear a mask when you come in. Or, you know, and they'll say, well, we really don't, you know, we think we might get an increase of people if they realize that we do that. Or uh, the other places saying, hey, we're the kind of place where everyone wants to come in here. Like if you go to a bar nightclub. I imagine most of the people that go into those places don't really give a shit about wearing a mask. They don't want to wear a mask. And they're not going to be uh, offended about overcrowding. Because if you're overcrowded, you wouldn't want to go to a nightclub or anything like that. So, that's happening. And it's a, um, from my opinion, it's a political ploy. It's a, it's, it's about, it's coming about time because of the vaccine uh, you know the people. The people that are concerned about it, they're vaccinated. The people that want to disregard it and stuff like that, a lot of them, I'd have to say, are probably. This is anecdotal. Will not get the vaccine. And so, you know, some of the people that don't want to wear a mask have the vaccine anyway. So, we have that. And you notice that in other right now, South America is really hot hotbed of new infections and India is going crazy in a horrible way and luckily you know so that that should be so the the infection rate going up in South America probably should increase and and, uh, I I don't know much about the Caribbean but I know, uh, I mean, I haven't heard much about the Caribbean but I know South America is seeing uptake and that's where we lead to our next subject. My daughter's school is a charter school. And they have a 8th grade, 7th grade trip going to Costa Rica. It's an eco-tour. And there's going to be a lot of chaperones, teachers and parents there. So there's no concern there with not having parental supervision. But... As of uh, three days ago, three and one days ago, Costa Rica's reported a steep increase, some of the highest increases in infection rate. 
higher than uh, Brazil, higher than India, respectively. Because of the uh, the size of their population, we may not look into, you know, but their Costa Rica is imposing restrictions on non-essential businesses because they're running out of beds. And this is, Costa Rica has every reason to not want restrictions, but they just can't. They had their worst year last year, and now it looks like they may have their worst year again because of the increased infection rates. So my daughter's school goes in about two weeks, but there's not a peep out of the administrator. So I've, I've been doing a little research, and I'm, when I ask them, I said, what is your contingency for it? Like, what, what, the first thing was, when the kids are going, they have to be tested prior. So if they test prior positive, they can't go. I mean, they won't be going to school because if they test positive, they got to wait until uh, they get a couple negative tests or at least one negative test before they can go. And when they come back two days before they return, they got to take a test. And if that comes out positive, then they can't. I don't. I don't know if they can re-enter the United States or anything like that. And I was just wondering if they. They. You know, we didn't hear about the contingency plans from them until we sent an email. And now there's this all this new thing creeping up that it's. You know when. A country that depends so much on tourism in Costa Rica is similar to the state of Florida when it comes to tourism. It's so bad there that they public they're publicizing the problem, but they're still not restricting. They're not restricting tourism or entering a country. Which is understandable. Costa Rica, you know, understandable. It's understandable why there is a big, uh, let's say, pushback because of how much money and hard currency comes into the country from tourists. So, why wouldn't, why would you expect them to shut down the international tourism? You know, they they'd have a budget deficit of maybe twenty. 20%. They say it's down 20% from 2019. So at this point, you think, wow, you may not want to send your kids there because there's tour groups, big tour groups. Uh, reading, I was reading on Reuters and USA Today, reputable news agencies, that Groups are canceling for June and things like that. Now, this is two weeks away. And yesterday, or in the last three days, they've Costa Rican authorities shut down non-essential businesses, not necessarily the ones that are servicing the international tourists by design. They shut down the other ones because they still need the money, but they have to shut down the other ones because of the increasing infection rate. So, one week shutdown. Remember when we shut down first time in the in the United States? We thought it could be one week. It's not going to be one week. And because that means when they see it's a problem, the peak, they're, they're not shutting down at the peak. They're shutting down before the peak. Because it's a curve. Right? So... 
I don't know if they're the people that are planning my daughter's trip if they're in denial because it's hard decisions that have to be made. First of all, you have parents that want to go. You have kids that want to go. But then you have other people say, you know, it's really kind of risky. And I really don't want to put my child in harm's way. And you say, Jim, why don't you just tell your daughter, it's your daughter, you know, my stepdaughter. Why don't you uh, just tell her she can't go? Well, that's the rub. Try to tell a 14-year-old they can't go with their friends to a trip, to an amazing trip someplace, and they go and they come back and nothing happens. I mean, either way, shutting it down, you just it's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible and stuff like that. And it's, it, it, it labels her uh, parents, you know, Abby and I, to be storm crows, kind of people, worry warts, pessimistic. But at a certain point, you just got to say, hey, this is, this is crazy. And some hard decisions have to be made. And they may be made. I was ready to go, hey, listen, you know, I, I see that, you know, during a the pandemic, they had it last year, they had to cancel and then had to reschedule because a lot of people who had paid for uh, a trip the year before were taking their credit and they're bringing it into this year. Well, I don't know if the deal is they can't use it again. They can't postpone again. But I think it's a crappy idea to go ahead with that just because you paid money already. We're ready to, we could, we could nix the whole idea the day before. But we still have to deal with the ramification. Why can't they take the money? Maybe, maybe if they had a great idea. So the pandemic was raging. They decided not to go last year. And it was bad in the United States. Now it's worse than Costa Rica. And they're going to it. So maybe they can get the credit, take the credit, and maybe go to another country. Maybe they can go to India or Brazil. They're pretty bad there, too. I mean, probably even a lot more money because India is further. Brazil, not so much. Or they could stay local. They could take them to the inner city. They could take the kids on a tour. I mean, if they're not concerned about the infection rate, they can maybe take them on a tour of crack houses in the inner city of uh, New York, New York, maybe in the Bronx. Or perhaps... They can uh, tour, take a tour of the largest trash dumps in the United States. Or sorting through IV drug abuser needles. You know, those needles. Maybe you can go in there. Then perhaps instead of Costa Rica, because you don't hear a lot from Guatemala and Honduras, the military dictatorships that have the horrible, and El Salvador that have drug gangs, they may be good places to go next year. Since we're really not caring about the state of the country that they're going to. It really doesn't matter. And I may be projecting, but I am concerned. I'm saying, how am I going to be able to rationalize with people that haven't come to the same conclusion as I have? That several 
months ago, back in April, actually April 20th, the State Department issued the top warning for uh, a bunch of countries, and Costa Rica was one of them. And if that didn't do it, now the Costa Rica government's shutting down everything except for, you know, the transparent attempt to keep luring in people like that. They need to have that money. They decided, um, you know, to, to publicize it. They're talk, The health ministry is talking to the, um, they're saying, hey, listen, we're doing it. Because, you know, most people in the United States and these other countries that are coming have been vaccinated. Not the kids, though. And yes, the kids aren't, are less likely to get it. But then again, it's raging there. So you're offsetting the increased protection the kids have from the youth by the increased chance of infection. And they'll say, you know, well, why, why go to a place like that if you don't have to? And I was having a discussion with a friend of mine and and Abby, and I'm like, uh, well, the, the, I came to the conclusion that scariest things, I always put priorities in here. The scariest thing I have for um, threats when it comes to my family is first traffic accidents. Down here in the Keys are horrible. They're horrible. The, the combination of drinking and driving and tourists, meaning a lot of people aren't familiar with the roads and they're looking for things and they're, they're eyeballing all new sorts of sights and sounds and they're looking for locations. So you have to deal with that and you have to deal with the drinking and all that stuff. And, that, you know, it, it happens. It's, it, it's the most dangerous, the scariest thing, the biggest threat to safety is a six-year-old with a driver's license, her friends that are coming of age now. So, and, and yeah, or someone going to a house where they have an uns, unsecured weapon. It's a law of averages down here. So, yeah, maybe going to Costa Rica, they may not uh, get infected. And if they get it, but if they get infected, it, you know, you, don't, you can be asymptomatic. Whenever you get tested, you could have it. And not display any symptoms. What well, that blocks you from going until you can pass that test. We had to pay additional insurance for that. I guess the insurance insures for their stay. Hopefully, we won't have to deal with that. I'm hoping we're gonna we're gonna start a little discussion and see if we're not. And I have to be careful. But luckily, most of the parents, if not any of them, listen to this show. Right? Because they would poo-poo all these ideas I've had, if anything I said, like, why would you go to a place that's a hotbed of infection? Does it make a lot of sense? Yeah. I don't think I don't think it does. But they they have their reasons. And the people with the most time on their hands to be able to make these decisions at school are uh, people that don't work. They don't work. If they do work, they won't work that hard. If you could take off in the middle of the day. I work nights. So when I go there, it's I usually go and pick up. I only have two days off a week, and that's Tuesday and Thursday. And I do my 
notary thing. I do the gym and then I do podcasting. And I drop off and a lot of times pick up my daughter. Uh, but they don't have the meetings then. And a lot of times their decisions are made by people that have more resources than we do. And they make their decisions. And you know, like I said, the charter schools down here are wannabe private schools because they're taking public public funds and they're turning them, you know, they're, they're treating it like it's a private school. Being the city, private schools, charter schools in their cities and things like that don't have those resources where kids can go off. You know, why not France? Why not Canada? Um, because they won't let them in probably. But we're, we're going to be having that discussion, so I'll give you an update on those things. But if you think about it, a lot of decisions that are made historically, you, you need time afterwards, after you institute a decision, to see if it was the right decision. Right? You never know at the time of making a decision that it's the right. Well, you could. Sometimes you could. It could be one of these things. One death is one door is certain death, and the other is freedom. So, when you go through the first door, you get your head chopped off. For that split second, you realize, oh, there's a there's an axe coming towards my head. That was a wrong decision. But that's you. You've known. You know that at that point. And the other one, when you get that to freedom, you go, oh, I'm free. That was the right decision. But a lot of times it takes a long time to know if it's the right decision. Investing in a certain stock. Pulling out of the stock market when you when you should have stayed in. Pulling out of your girlfriend when you shouldn't have stayed in. You know? You know what I'm saying. Those unplanned pregnancies, right? That you... You don't know if that was a good idea or a bad idea. Years later, you might say, hey, uh, it's horrible. But you may look at the thing and say, oh, boy, that was a bad idea. I should have. I should have definitely used a little more protection. The kids don't really respect me and the wife doesn't. So I could have done without that. I know that's cold-blooded, but that's the, that's the dollars and cents of it in the end. And it happens historically, too. Most, dec- most visually or most informally in wars, when they decide to do something, they always have grandiose ideas. But a lot of times, they're met, think of almost any historical war. There was always repercussions. Sometimes you got the winners, sometimes you got to lose. Like Napoleon won a lot of wars, but he lost some big ones in the end. Like going into Moscow and stuff like that, and you have then you have World War One and World War Two, where Germany made a mistake of, uh, or you know, political decision to, to bomb a, a, a the bomb to torpedo the Lusitania, which sparked America's intervention in World War One, which you were almost already getting tired out, and then you had French American troops coming to the Western Theater. To you know, to speed up the loss with Germany and its axis, um, the Central Powers, and then World War Two. 
There's all sorts of decisions. Like Italy decided to rearm back in the 1920s. They did it. uh, Italy and France spent a lot of money in the 20s and the early 30s rearming. Now, arming for war is all about timing. You arm too early, your weapons are going to be outdated by the time you use it. You arm too late, and then you don't have enough, right? You do it right at the time, and then you do it. So that's when you're a militaristic society, when they start building a lot of stuff, and you're if the smart militaristic society, when you build a lot of weapons, offensive weapons, you're going to use them. You got to use them. It's unethical. I'm not debating ethics. I'm talking about the rationale. So Germany was the one. Germany was at the beginning of the war, was militarily weaker than France. But France had depleted almost all its funds and stuff like that, and they were done. They, they, they were done rearming, and they had all the tanks and planes they were going to use. And they realized they had to, in order to sustain their defensive buildup, they'd have to, you know, they, they couldn't sustain it during the, a depression. It was a worldwide depression. Germany was coming out of it and it just started heating up. And then when, you know, 40, 41, 42, their production was hitting its peak. But they didn't forecast the United States. You know, the productivity of the United States started doing that too. So whenever you're planning something like that, when you make a decision, you know in the end, like in the end you realize, oh, well, Germany made a bad decision. You know, they made a, they made the right decision to arm when they didn't. They made a and and when to attack France and Britain and all that. They made the wrong decision to go into Russia or to continue attacking during the winter. So you you know that stuff. And there's other all sorts of like infrastructure. We hear about infrastructure right now. You know who had horrible infrastructure? At the end of World War II, the infrastructure of Western Europe was uh, largely destroyed, especially in the big metropolitan areas. Maybe not so much in the rural areas, because the rural areas, it's not much infrastructure. It's just you know, small roads and things like that. But the highways and, the, and the, the town centers, factories, and all that was destroyed. What happened after World War II? The Marshall Plan, in order to keep Western Europe from falling under the influence of the Soviet Union, George Marshall, the former commander of all U.S. forces and the, you know head of the Joint Chiefs of Staffs in the United States, uh, was Secretary of State, and his plan was to to fortify Europe by beefing up their infrastructure, you know, spending money on it. And they built new highways, new factories, and things like that, so that were destroyed. So they were ready in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, by the time it was completed, those things, they were, they were cutting edge. Japan. Japan was uh, helped out by the uh, United States, and they, they had state-of-the-art technology. And production um, philosophies brought to them by the United States by typically, 
if you hear about the Deming Awards, they, you know, he brought, brought out this new idea how production should be done, how it should be done if, efficiently. So the infrastructure in the United States was neglected for a long time. Jimmy Carter talked about it in the 1970s, which is already almost, you know, it's 45, 40, um, it was about 45 years ago. When he was he was elected in uh, seventy six seventy seven, and if if they had done that then, and the infrastructure would have been, we're we're maybe in an opportune time. We let it get so bad that it would have to be replaced anyway. Maybe we just got to bite the bullet and start building up again. But we're going to have the newest of of the modern first world countries. We could have a state-of-the-art infrastructure. We're ready. We let our railroads go, but then again, the rest of the technology around the world, they were, they were competing technologies for railways. You have like bullet trains that run on rails. You got mag, maglev, which is magnetic levitation, where they use uh, a magnetic force to reduce friction by keeping it off the rails so there's no actually real touching going on with the rails they increase the speed because you don't have friction the friction you have the friction caused by air and things like that so you have all these things that we can choose from in the united states we have the right of ways the the railway still there in a lot of places they weren't built over they were abandoned the railroads but they could still be they have to make it whether they're going to use them or not but that's one for instance and there's going to be airports because they'll have new planes, other new transportation systems. We're about probably like 10, 10 years away from commuter planes being electric. Electric, uh, electric power planes. Like, you know, with technology, there comes advancements and things like that. And there's the miniaturization of energy storage. Obviously, electric Motors, if you know the fundamentals of it, electric motors are much more efficient. So size-wise, the big problem is the energy storage. And now there's a new technique, or I would call it procedure, where they're talking about making the whole structure of a, a of a vehicle or a plane into the battery. Like the battery is the chassis, which makes a lot of sense. The storage capacity in your in your frame in the body. I mean, not just a bunch of batteries laying on the bottom. It's a structure that makes it hard and and uh, uh, resistant and making it lighter. Yeah, you have those things. And there's a new thing coming up, and it will change. So there'll be new new airports, new. Railroads, if they, well, railroads or whatever they're going to call it. It won't be called railroads anymore. It could be called tramways or something like that. Underground tunnels, like recently Elon Musk hasn't spoken about that, but they have, uh, he has a way of efficiently boring through Earth to build some of these high speed transportations in these inner cities. You have hypersonic travel. You know, semi, it's almost like semi-ballistic planes that go into, go multiple times the speed of sound. 
So you can shorten trips that used to be 12 hours into two hours. Amazing. Making the world smaller. So the U.S. may be uniquely prepared to retake the 21st century. China started a couple years on us. They have a 20-year start maybe. But maybe we need to take a long view. Because they started doing theirs and we can learn from their mistakes. We can learn from everyone's mistakes and we can do all those things and make those decisions. We don't, we're, maybe, I think, originally I thought we were going a little slow electrifying the United States, electrifying our transportation. And it looks like it's pre, it's, it's, moving along at a pretty brisk pace without government intervention because the the technology is good. I mean, you have companies like Lucid that came about with a 500-mile range. I don't think anybody has a problem with saying, oh, 500 miles, that's not enough. Well, they might say, well, if you're going on a cross-country trip, you'll have to wait so-and-so to recharge. Well, I don't know if you've ever driven 500 miles, but you're going to have to stop for something. You know? So, and how many people, you know, obviously, yeah, a combustion vehicle because you have it, but once you get it under 15, 20 minutes to recharge, I think it's game over just because I, when I go to the gas stations, there's minimum five, six minutes just to get gas. If I had to spend 10 more minutes in order to save 70% of my fuel cost, I might might be able to do that. And obviously, if I'm staying locally, I could do that at home, you know, the overnight charging. But when you're on the road, I may, may want to, if I'm taking a long trip, I may want to take a 15, 20 minute. I, I often do when I get out of the vehicle. But I digress. So these decisions we make, sometimes not making, not making a decision is the best decision. Because people start seeing it. I remember I had an argument. Someone says, oh, the electric vehicles, it's not going to catch on. It's so bad, blah, 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 blah. You know what? There's going to be electric boats. There's going to be electric planes. There'll be electric jets. How is there an electric jet? Well, you'll see. They'll figure it out. There'll be plasma engines and all this different stuff coming out. New ways to store energy, new ways of generating energy. Right? New ways of combating greenhouse gases. Once it starts getting bad, I guess people are going to really start thinking about, oh, wow, it's really looking bad. It's getting hot. We're getting more fires. Hence, you know, you know, drier there could be innovations, the unforeseen innovations coming up in the next couple of years that will take us in the right direction. But the decisions we make now will take years for us to realize whether they were the optimum decisions. They could be right decisions aren't necessarily downside. The right decisions sometimes are more up than down or reduces the negative effects of not making any decision at all. So you can end up being 
a decision could be like, oh, that wasn't a really great decision, but it was better than not doing anything at all. Going back four or five, six years ago, there, the Florida Bay, uh, they, they knew a while back that a lot of the development in South Florida restricted the flow of the um, river, river grass. There was the traditional water flow that went into Florida Bay through the Everglades. And it was a long, shallow, wide, shallow waterway that would purify water, rainwaters that would go into bay and provide a certain mixture of, uh, you had ocean water and fresh water, and that mixture together promoted a specific type of marine life and sponges in the bay and things like that. And they were affected. The seagrass was affected and things like that. And they, a lot of people or environmental groups and people who wanted to try to right the uh, go in the right direction with Florida Bay decided that if they can restore the traditional water flow, that would go a long way in reestablishing its proper balance. But there was interest that certainly were, was against that. And... I don't even know if they're doing it anymore because of all the other things we have. You know, everyone takes an opportunity when not to do the right thing. Sometimes when something big comes along and say, oh, well, let's shit can that idea. So originally they were going to take uh, a certain amount of land, maybe 600,000 acres. But then they reduced it to 60,000 acres, reduced it to 10% of that traditional of the former water flow. And I don't even know if they're going to do that. But Florida has a host of environmental problems that are on its way. And we'll see in the summer, once the rains start again, uh, perhaps we'll see the red tide again. We'll see around mid-state on the ocean side. It would be around Stewart and on the uh, Mexico, uh, Gulf of Mexico, above Naples, and all that, where this runoff from the sugarcane fields <coughs> that are stored start leaching back into the waterways surrounding uh, Florida, and then we'll see a massive die-off again. And then we'll know we'll know that was inaction was a bad idea. But they always realize it's a bad idea. But they always say, well, it costs too much to really do anything about it. But it's it's cumulative not doing something. And sometimes when you do something like like infrastructure, we have to we have to provide that. And there was a theory behind, I'm sure, doing the bare minimum for infrastructure. Because when are you done? When are you, You're never done. A highway is never built, is it? Is it you certainly not in Florida? I've been here for 14 years. They've been working on the same highways. I see new interchanges, exits, and things like that. When I drive up to Fort Lauderdale, it is nothing like to drive up to Fort Lauderdale before. I'm not just talking about the surroundings and stuff like that, the roads. When a one 
trip back from the airport a couple years ago, they had opened a series of exits and roads and ramps. And for an hour leaving Fort Lauderdale, I thought I was, I didn't know where the fuck I was going. I was just heading south. I knew I was heading south, which was the right direction. All I have to do is really head south. That's a nice thing about Florida. If I, if I headed too far west, I would end up in the Everglades. If I headed too far east, I got the Atlantic Ocean. So all I have to do is just keep on going south, and eventually if you go to the most southern tip, I'll make it to the Keys. So I always felt confident about that. you know. But every so often you get looped around on some of these roads and go, well, now I'm heading west. But as long as I'm heading a little west, because, you know, they, it, whatever it is. But the point is that the roads are never done. They're always building roads. There's new interchanges and new things. There's new population growth coming up. Um, when I can imagine what it was like 40, 50 years ago, because Homestead, Florida City, surrounding communities, all farmland. It was all farmland. Now you see big developments. Um, they started before Andrew, obviously. And Andrew, a lot of it was destroyed and things like that, but they rebuilt the higher standards. That's history for itself. When you say, hey, we're going to let them build a certain way, build certain houses and stuff like that, we haven't been hit in a while. And then it got hit. Now there's new building codes in uh, South Florida because the tremendous hit they took from Andrew. And we certainly saw the damage done in Irma or Hurricane Michael in the panhandle. Remember the pictures of Mexico Beach. There's history. And the newer, you can see the newer code housing was intact. And the rest of it was like, it was an intentional demolition. Because it was just sticks and debris. So that's history in the thing. That's, That's infrastructure. Our electrical system. Our electrical system in the Keys which held up very fine in a bunch of storms we had, especially in Irma, the main spine going all the way down. They learned how to do that from history. So when when we make decisions and go say, listen, maybe it may not be a good idea to send our children to a place that is being ravaged with uh, the flu, Maybe we should just sit this one out and take the heat from the kids. Because in the long run, they're going to say, well, was it, you know, they can say, hey, we did it. We made it through. And they say, well, sometimes when people do something, they say, well, that was a stupid risk to do in the end. You ever do something like that? That's the one. That's another possibility too. That you go and do it, and you make it through, and then you realize, well, what? Why did I risk it? Was it was it really worth it? In the end, I mean, if you keep on doing that, and eventually you might get burned, you're increasing the chance of it. But who knows? I'm just throwing it out there. I'm just another knucklehead on the bus. A passenger on this bus here that we got here. 
Well, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you are in Key Largo, remember, I haven't mentioned the last couple of things, that the Catch Restaurant is at Mile Marker 102 on the Oceanside, open every day for lunch and dinner. They have happy hour Monday through Friday, 3.30 to 6.30, with uh, great deals on food, happy hour food and drink prices. And then if you catch your own fish, please bring it in and they'll cook it up for you. I had a phone call the other day. They asked me, oh, the catch. Do you only cook food that people catch and prepare? And that sounded like a great business idea. You know, say, listen, we're just going to cook other people's food that they bring in. Hmm. What a concept. And just say, hey, we'll have a couple, we'll have a couple other choices. That might, that might be the thing. But it would kind of suck, though, when the, the weather's shitty and no one has any fish. Maybe have a couple choices and say, hey, listen, we're just going to have mahi, hamburgers, and chicken. And then anything else you bring in, we'll cook up for you and we'll prepare your sides. Who knows? Uh, thank you for listening. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and family. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have any questions or comments, please send your questions and comments to jim at keysbartender.com. If you have anything neg- negative to say, please send them to Sean Hannity at Fox News. Okay, this is Jim the Keys Bartender signing off. Thanks.